Uh, today, as uh, we jump into the Word, we have an incredible blessing. In a few minutes, uh, Pastor Alex Che is going to come join me. Um, and what we uh, are starting today, and if you've been at Anchor for a while, this is now the third time we've been able to go through this, where we have uh, Anchor Church's overseers come and speak into the body of Anchor Church. Uh, for some clarity's sake, I know there's different church backgrounds and different names for different governing authorities within the church. Without getting into the weeds of this, uh, just to get some clarity for you guys, our overseers are a different uh, board than our elders or our, uh, our board of directors as a church. These are different, different entities. Uh, and what our overseers are, is uh, they are a source of accountability. Since we're a non-denominational church, we felt like, again, we, we talk a lot about what is the healthiest way to conduct uh, a church body. And so there is the overseers, who day to day, they don't have any decision-making authority over the church. That happens with the board and the elders and the staff. So day to day, there isn't uh, overseers making decisions, but the overseers are a consistent day to day board uh, to go to for wisdom, for prayer, for counsel. They've got incredible experience, a wealth of knowledge in, in how to shepherd a body of believers well. And so day to day, they are just a, a council board. But what they are, if there is ever a time where the lead pastor, which right now, uh, I get to the privilege of filling that role at this church. But if there's ever uh, any questions about the lead pastor's uh, morality, leadership, theology, uh, you name it, go down the list. If there's a concern, the elders of Anchor Church have direct access to the overseers, and the overseers have complete authority on what discipline of the lead pastor would be, including firing them. And so uh, these, these are the people that have this, this role uh, within our church, and Alex, Pastor Alex being one of them, and uh, uh, I'm excited to not just hear from them and for them to see you, but uh, I'm excited for our church to hear uh, from some of the primary voices into our leadership as a church. And uh, we're spoiled to have the, the overseers that we have and uh, excited that today we get to hear from Pastor Alex, who is a pastor of Word of Life Church over in Billings. Before you make your way up here, um, I just want to tell you that Pastor Alex and his wife, Debbie, are uh, absolute champions to Anchor Church ever being planted. Um, if it's possible to take out the supernatural God involvement in the church, if we're just dependent on humanity helping us out, there's no one who has helped Anchor Church plant more than Pastor Alex and Debbie. Uh, from day one, the encouragement and the support that they have given us, that they've given this church, the vision, the kindness, the generosity. Uh, we just go on and on and on. Uh, before we ever thought that... Um, we might have the ability to, to plant a church. Uh, Alex was speaking that kind of confidence and encouragement into us. And so even if you've never met Pastor Alex, every one of us has benefited from him, his kindness, his generosity, his kingdom-minded mindset, and uh, he is a faithful friend, a faithful support. Um, so Alex, I just wanna tell you publicly, thank you so much for your unending support, your incredible friendship. And Anchor, if you are able, would you stand to your feet as we welcome and honor Pastor Alex? Thank you. Pastor Kyle, you are too kind. Uh, good morning, Anchor Church. Uh, it is a privilege to be here with you. And I want, I'm so proud of you, Anchor Church. You just celebrated three years. Pastor Kyle, Danny, the original team, all of you that have joined recently. As a three-time church planner, we call ourselves serial church planners. And those that have helped other church planners start churches, I just want to let you know what is happening here at Anchor is an amazing thing. 
But Kyle and Danny, I'm proud of you not only because I see the blessing of God here, I'm proud of you because of what people haven't seen during the dark night of the soul back in the day when you could have given in to hopelessness, but you stayed faithful to God's call and there's a refining and an authority that's in your life because of your faithfulness. And it's an honor to priv and a privilege to partner with you. And I believe you will take this church farther than we've been able to take our churches. And I will celebrate that. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. So I celebrate with Anchor Church today. Well, we have a lot to cover. So I hope you had your coffee or your Mountain Dew this morning. And I want you to turn to the person next to you, the last 12 books of the Old Testament, the Minor Prophets. I want you to turn to them and name one of the 12 Minor Prophets. Here's a hint, a guy that was swallowed by a big fish or a whale. Go ahead. Today we're going to talk about the answer is Jonah. If I had a title for the book of Jonah, I would call it a reluctant missionary and a relentless God. And here's the question, what's the purpose of the book of Jonah? Why is it included in one of the 12 minor prophets? Let me read to you the message introduction from the book of Jonah. Everybody knows about Jonah. People who have never read the Bible know enough about Jonah to laugh at a joke about him and quote the whale. Jonah has entered our folklore. There is a playful aspect to his story, a kind of slapstick clumsiness about Jonah as he bumbles his way along, but always unsuccessfully to avoid God. But the playfulness is not frivolous. This is deadly serious. While we are smiling or laughing at Jonah, we drop the guard with which we are trying to keep God at a comfortable distance. And suddenly we find ourselves caught in the purposes and commands of God. All of us, no exceptions. Before we get into all four chapters of the book of Jonah this morning, the big question is, come on, really a whale? Did he really get swallowed by a whale? There are two main views about the book of Jonah. It's an allegory, didn't really happen. It's historical, it really happened. We could spend some time talking about people that were swallowed by a, a giant fish or a whale. But here's my question to you. Have the experts ever been wrong over the centuries? Who are you going to believe, the experts or the one who rose from the dead? So here's where I land. I believe the book of Jonah is historical because of the words of Jesus. Now, it's okay to ask probing questions, but look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 to 41. He, meaning Jesus, answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none of it, none will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. So people would say, come on, how can this be true? Here's where I land. Could not the creator of heaven and earth use a storm and a sea creature to accomplish his purposes. Of course he can, and he did. We're gonna go through all four chapters of the book of Jonah, and you're still gonna beat the Baptist to lunch today. Chapter one. 
I call this Jonah flees from the Lord. Read with me Jonah chapter 1, 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Here's the primary question. Why did Jonah try to run from God and flee to Tarshish rather than go to Nineveh? I don't know which way north is. Point to north, would you? Okay, this is north. God tells Jonah to go one direction, and it is so clear. Go to Nineveh. So Jonah says, I'm going to Tarshish. The instructions were so clear, he went the exact opposite direction. Nineveh, Tarshish. So the question is, why did Jonah run the exact opposite direction? Nineveh was the city, the capital city of Assyria. The Syrians had dominated the planet for a long time. They were a very cruel military nation, and they were the arch enemies of Israel, and Jonah was a prophet of Israel. A little context about the Syrians. They were not nice people at all. Quote, if we think purely of the situation in Nineveh, only a relatively small section of the population would come within its scope. We should think rather of the Syrian attitude toward others. While there was no written code of international law at the time, there was generally accepted code of conduct. The Syrian assumed that in virtue of his conquest, he had been placed above lesser breeds and was entitled to ignore the dictates of conscience and compassion in his behavior to his neighbors. It is very easy to slip into that concept that our position gives us the right to dominate others. Much racial prejudice and discrimination comes from this. So we're all created equal. That's the bottom line. But when the Syrians thought we're in charge of the planet, we're better than anyone else and we can treat them any way we want, that was a problem. Let me give you a little idea of how the Syrians dealt with other nations. They had three primary strategies for warfare. The one was pitch battle. This is battle in the open field. You know exactly what it looks like because you've seen the movies. You come running with swords and shields and axes, yelling, and people are dying and a lot of casualties. Well, the Syrians wanted to avoid that. That's called pitch battle. The other was another strategy called siege warfare. And you've seen the movies about that, so you know exactly what that's like. You cut off the water supply, the resources. You try to choke them into submission. But that takes a long time, and it's very costly. The Assyrians were, they were notorious for psychological warfare. What they would do is basically try to intimidate the people to give up before there was a battle. And it went something like this. After conquering all kinds of people and with a reputation for power and cruelty, they would come up and they would surround the city and basically say, you see what we've done to them? You just might as well give up because you're going to have a lot of loss of life. And sometimes they would. But if they wouldn't listen, listen to what they would do. Did I mention they, they weren't nice people? 
If this method was unsuccessful, the army would target a weaker nearby city and destroy it instead. The inhabitants would be punished as examples. This often involved torture, bodily mutilation, eye gouging, skinning alive. Towns would be burned, orchards cut down, fields would be salted so they could no longer be used, so on. Skins, heads, body parts, and mutilated bodies, living or dead, could be gathered and displayed to further convince stubborn inhabitants that submission was the most sensible option. This was an effective way of instilling fear and establishing respect throughout the empire, and the Syrian reputation was in itself an effective means of control. Try to get this city to surrender. They won't. You target a weaker city and you make them an example. Psychological warfare. You can picture the horror that it would create if you saw your neighbors in that condition. But this is who the Assyrians were. So the question, why did Jonah go to Tarshish when God told him to go to Nineveh? I was thinking about the most relevant way of trying to put myself in Jonah's shoes. Do you remember when ISIS was creating havoc in that whole region in the Middle East, beheading Christians when they took over the Iraqi city of Mosul? Well, for many years, century after century, the experts said, there's no city called Nineveh. That's a fable. And then lo and behold, Bible archaeology for about the thousandth time proved that Nineveh did exist and the Bible is true. And guess where Nineveh was located? The Iraqi city of Mosul. If God called you during the days when ISIS controlled Mosul and said, go preach there, how many of you have, would have run to Seattle? <laughs> I think that gives us a feel for why Jonah might have run the opposite direction, but it's actually not the reason, I think, that he ran. There was a deeper reason than fear, although knowing the Assyrians, I would have run. So keep that question in mind. So God creates a storm. We can't get into all of chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. I call chapter 2 prayers from the belly of a fish. Let me summarize it this way. In the belly of a fish, we are confronted with the ultimate purpose of our lives, and without God and without an eternal purpose, life is futile. I know what some of you are thinking. Three days in the belly of a fish surrounded by gastric juices and seaweed wrapped around your head. But you're thinking, that's not the problem. It's three days without Wi-Fi. <laughs> there are echoes of the Psalms in Jonah chapter 2. And Jonah, three days in the belly of a fish, is confronted with his disobedience. And he's confronted with the ultimate purpose of life. And he says, Jonah chapter 2, 9, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Like Jonah, when we're in a crisis, when we're in the belly of a fish, we have an opportunity to learn things about God and ourselves. And we have an opportunity to pray like we've never prayed before. There's a book called The Making of a Leader which has deeply impacted my life over the decades. Dr. Robert Clinton 
studied the lives of historical, biblical, and contemporary leaders. And he says this about life lessons in a crisis. In the belly of a fish, we learn deep independence on God. In the belly of a fish, we learn submission to God. In the belly of a fish, we get a new perspective on life and ministry. In the belly of a fish, we have a rekindled sense of destiny. In the belly of a fish, we have an openness to change. In the belly of a fish, we have an urgency to accomplish God's work. Is there something God has put on your heart that is urgent, but you've not seen it accomplished yet? In the belly of a fish, we're confronted with God's purposes for our lives. So the question that we ask in the belly of a fish is, how many chances do I have left to fulfill God's call on my life? Would you read out loud with me Psalm 39.4? Ready? Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Ever make a vow to God and then go back on that vow when the crisis passed? Well, the good thing is Jonah kept his vow. What would you think if you could read your own obituary? There have been situations throughout history where somebody actually read their own obituary. Somebody said, okay, Mark Twain is dead. He died of a grave illness and Mark Twain wasn't dead. And this notable, quotable author, when he heard that he had died and that there was an obituary, he said, the reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. But I wonder how we would feel if we were to read our obituary, would there be regrets? Would there be things that God put in our hearts that we would say, I wish I would accomplish that? Did I delay? Did I disobey in the belly of a fish? We are confronted with the eternal purpose of our lives. So the Lord who commanded the storm, the Lord who commanded the fish, giant fish whale to swallow Jonah, it says in Jonah chapter two, right at the end, that the Lord commands the fish and the fish vomits Jonah onto the seashore. This is how my mind works. The fish is thinking, you know, I love the taste of prophets, but it just doesn't agree with me. And blah, Jonah is now on the seashore. So some Bible scholars say, can you imagine what Jonah would have looked like bleached white after three days in the gastric Juices of a fish, no wonder the people of Nineveh listened to him. That's merely conjecture. Nobody knows if it looks like that. But Jonah's given a second chance. Jonah chapter 3. Back on track and preaching in Nineveh. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. A second chance. Saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to at the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. So chapter one, God calls Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh, judgment. Jonah runs to Tarshish. I might have the directions wrong. In the belly of a fish, he is confronted with his disobedience. He makes a vow to do what God called him to do. Chapter three, he gets back on track, a second chance to his original assignment. He preaches to Nineveh, the arch enemies of Israel, and Nineveh repents. Now, any evangelist would have been excited. They would have been on Facebook. Hey, my evangelistic campaign was successful. The entire city 
repented, but Jonah's upset. You know, one of the things I wonder about Jonah is this, because Jonah's not exactly your ideal prophet. He's running from the Lord. He's disobeying the Lord. He's always angry and grumpy. Why didn't God just use someone else besides Jonah? I don't know why, but I think that God loved the Assyrians who needed to repent. And I think he loved Jonah who needed to repent. I think he loved Israel and his purpose for Israel, but I also think he loved all the nations of the world. But he also loved the individual Jonah, even though he was disobedient. Aren't you glad God doesn't write us off when we're disobedient? Maybe we're a lot more like Jonah than we realize. Jonah chapter 3, 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Jonah chapter 4. I call this, I knew this would happen. We find out now the answer to the question, why did Jonah run from the presence of the Lord? It actually wasn't primarily driven by fear. Although, <laughs> you got the picture. Why did Jonah run from the presence of the Lord? Jonah did not want God to be gracious to the Assyrians because he did not like the Assyrians. And the Assyrians would be the nation that would bring judgment on the 10 tribes of Israel to the north and so wipe them out, they become the 10 lost tribes. Jonah chapter four, verse one through four. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? What we learn is God wants all nations to know and serve him. His heart is for all the nations, including this one. This is how the book of Jonah ends. It ends without a conclusion. We don't know if the grumpy prophet stays grumpy or if the grumpy pr prophet finally understands God has a plan for our nation, Israel, but God also loves other nations. Then God said to Jonah, and this has to do with an object lesson. God provides a shade plant. Then he causes the plant to die. And Jonah is just miserable. I picture this hot sun beating down on his head and he's just grumpy and angry and all kinds of things. Just the prophet of Israel. He's just grumpy beyond belief. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant, the plant that came up and died? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between the right and left hand as well as many animals? So here's the question. At the end of the story of Jonah that has no conclusion, did Jonah finally capture God's heart? That's the question we're left with. And I want to leave today's message with some unanswered questions. And I just want to ask you some challenging questions. 
But I'm going to ask you for a favor because Pastor Kyle knows that I'm going to end this with an appeal to the Great Commission and God's heart for the nations, bit of a missions message. But please, when this message is done, please do not go up to Pastor Kyle and say, Pastor Kyle, we need to start a missions program right now and, and we need to start an outreach to Hawaii. <laughs> so please, don't do that because he'll be annoyed and he won't invite me back. It would be better for you to pray something like this. Lord, would you give Pastor Kyle and the leadership team wisdom to know if, when, and how to start some sort of a missions program here at Anchor Church? Because I'll tell you what's better than you telling Pastor Kyle what to do. It's the Lord telling Pastor Kyle what to do. But this isn't about you telling Pastor Kyle and Anchor Church what to do. It's about asking this question. Are there groups of people that I've lost a heart for? And is it possible that there are some people that are outside of my radar that God wants me to have on my radar? It's never a question of should we do something locally or globally? The answer is yes. But I want to leave you with some uncomfortable questions, probing questions that you may not answer today. And as you've heard, that you won't make Pastor Kyle answer today as well. I want to show you a picture of my family that we took in 2019 in Manila, Philippines. And the reason we wanted to take this, my son Josh, my daughter Jessie, and of course uh, my wife Debbie, who is a Missoula girl. So I, you know, I have a special place in my heart for Missoula. My son and his wife live here, but he was single then. My daughter was married. We've been talking about the Philippines since they were little. It's like, you guys need to come and understand why this is so important to us. We took this picture at a restaurant in Manila where around 1985, uh, I met this beautiful Montana girl and we went to this restaurant and uh, we decided we were gonna do life together and serve the Lord together. We got engaged, got married, had kids and the rest is history. Why is this so important? Well, we wanted our kids to know that our family history is really bound up in the Great Commission because Debbie and I met doing missions work in Manila, Philippines. You want to know something really cool? My son got engaged at that same restaurant decades later. It's just amazing to a lovely Filipino uh, woman. But here's why I share that story. We were just recently in the Philippines again last month. And we found out that while we were in the Philippines, that the founder of Youth with the Mission, Lauren Cunningham, had passed away at the age of 88. Lauren Cunningham had a vision in 1960 of the waves of the ocean crashing on the seashore and just becoming waves of young people that were preaching the gospel. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people have been impacted by Lauren Cunningham's vision to reach all the nations. Well, it suddenly dawned on Debbie and I, we were part of that wave of young people. And now we are in a place to ask the question, Lord, what do you want us to do with the nations of the world? So I was just recently in the Philippines and I always come back conflicted. Why? I love living in Montana. This is a great place to live. But God's given us a heart for the other nations of the world, places where People have never heard the gospel once. 
places where there are no local body of believers to be, be, to be discipled like Anchor Church, places where people don't have the scriptures in their native tongue. So the, the confliction that I feel, the conflict that I feel, I don't know if confliction is a word, the conflict that I feel is a sense of being so blessed with my life here in Montana, USA, but asking the question again and again and again, Lord, what do you want me to do? What are you calling me to do? And I find that each time I come back, when I see desperate poverty, I, I feel like the Lord is touching my heart and I'm always trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do with the desperate poverty that I see. Because people do some very desperate things when they don't have food. But people also do some very desperate things when they don't have the gospel. And so those are the things that always rattle around in my heart and my mind, a sense of gratitude that I get the life that I have here through the sovereignty of God. But Lord, what do you want me to do in the nations of the world? So here's what I'm going to leave you with in terms of some questions for you to wrestle with. Because I think these are the questions Jonah had to wrestle with. Jonah had no problem believing that God wanted to bless Israel, and he did. Jonah's challenge was he didn't want God to be gracious to the Assyrians. So think about all the nations of the world, so much going on politically, all the conflict, all the different views. What is crystal clear in the scriptures is God's heart is for all the nations of the world. So... Can I leave you with some probing questions that I've wrestled with for decades and I continue to wrestle with today as a pastor here in the States? See, this isn't so much about a missions program. This is really about a Holy Spirit prompting. In other words, what is God prompting you to do? Not so much what are you telling other people to do. Jonah simply had to respond to God's call on his life. By the way, I'm just going to throw out a word of encouragement. I encourage every single follower of Christ, if possible, make it a priority, save money, put it on your calendar. I encourage every single follower of Christ once in your lifetime, go on a short-term cross-cultural missions trip because you will begin to understand the kingdom of God is much bigger than what's happening here. It includes what's happening here. And I want you to know the kingdom of God is prevailing. It is growing. It is prevailing. Lives are being changed. Cities and nations are being transformed. The gospel is so powerful. And if you could see what God is doing in other places, other cultures, you will be so inspired by the sovereignty of God and the power of the gospel. So if at all possible, make it a priority to go on a short-term cross-cultural missions trip. Some of you in this room, God may call you into missions, and that is for you to follow the prompting of the Lord and to perhaps take that step of faith. So, by the way, if you think, you know, one day I may be a missionary and I'm here at Anchor Church, a little bit of advice. Missionaries just don't go, they're sent. And if, if one day you're to be sent by any church, 
might be just good to really serve faithfully at the church for a while. So a little, little hint for anyone that's looking at missions in the future. You know, just think about that. Faithful here, faithful there. A little bit of uh, inside information that pastors know. So the questions that I want you to wrestle with is this. As much as God is blessing Anchor Church, and I'm telling you, he's blessing Anchor Church. I see his fingerprints all over this church. And I rejoice with you. I celebrate with you. And I will continue to do whatever I can to support you. But what about those places on the planet where there is no local church, no local community of believers? What about those who have never heard the gospel once? Would you wrestle with that with me? What about those who have never once heard the life-changing message of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and the life he has for us? Here's the second question. It always makes me uncomfortable to go to places where there's extreme poverty, because I know I can't fix it, but I know that it's real. What about those who don't have the basic necessities of life resources such as food, water, clothing, and shelter, and live in a place where the government or the city can't provide those resources. What is God's heart toward them? So that's something else I wrestle with. And I think at the end of the day, when the word of the Lord came to Jonah, he had to ask the question, am I clear on what God's telling me to do and am I going to do it? And at the end of the day, the question is, what do the scriptures clearly teach us about the heart of God, the Great Commission, and what is he asking us to do? I think for my wife, uh, Debbie and I, because we met in missions, this has been part of our DNA through all three of our church plants. And it's something that we have wrestled with. It's something we have participated in. It's something that we have been blessed in. As Anchor Church goes into the next season, the next part of your growth, it's a lot like life. A baby is born and that baby needs a lot of nurturing. But at some point, the baby becomes mature and then is able to give and to help others. And so as Anchor Church matures and grows, may your influence in this community and this state grow, and may your impact for the sake of the gospel grow on this planet so that many, many, many will come to understand how good our God is, who Jesus is, the hope he's given to us, and that um, you will be a part of all of that, both locally and globally. So, a reluctant missionary, but a relentless God. Pastor.